go to the New Testament, you're almost going to go to the end of the Bible, to the book of James. And if you could get to chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at what James says in a couple places actually in his book, but we're only going to look at one place in James, what he says about this battle that is fierce over our mouths. So we're going to look at this battle, and while you're opening up to James chapter 4, some of us remember the Carpenter's music duo you remember that group for some of us who are a little bit older they were pretty popular they sold over 90 million records they had two number one hits three or four i think top five hits i mean they were massively popular karen and richard carpenter brother and sister karen as you probably know died unexpectedly of heart failure at the very young age of 32. I still remember reading about this when I was pretty young. And the reason that she died at 32, it was really due to self-abuse from an eating disorder called anorexia nervosa. But I don't know if you know the rest of the story or all of the story because what brought on Karen Carpenter's fatal obsession with weight control was something that the USA Today network reported. Her battle began with a reviewer that once called her, and I'm going to quote it, Richard's chubby sister. That took something that she had been dealing with, a struggle since she was 13, and absolutely toppled it in her life. To where eventually, to the dismay and the shock and the astonishment and the tears and the frustration of people who love her, she literally starved herself to death. Richard's chubby sister. Now, you might be younger here, uh, and you still maybe haven't yet quite understood the, the value, destructively, and the potential of pain that your words can bring on the schoolyard, outside in recess maybe, in the cafeteria. But our words can bring life and our words can bring death. That's what Proverbs says. And if we're going to get a handle on really speaking words that bring life, then God must do a work in our heart. For that is where our words are coming from. In fact, you've heard the expressions, I think. They go like this. Speak your mind. Speak your internal mind. Tell me what is in your heart. Or in a very older phrase, much older phrase, a penny for your thoughts. You see, each of those expressions tell you, tell me that our words are coming from some place where they originate deep inside of us. And the Bible says it comes from our hearts. Here's what Jesus says. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So every single word we speak is coming from our heart. And every single word according to scripture has a moral value that brings life or a moral value that brings death. There's not a third alternative. And James is about to impress on us the seriousness of our responsibility to speak well. And he's going to do it in several increasingly heavy weights that he's going to put on us. Here's number one. I've got four points for you today, and here's the first. To tame the tongue, remember we have accountability. 
remember we have accountability. Now, I'm going to read the verse for you. It's verse 1 and then verse 2. But before we read that verse, let me just give you a little bit of context of James and his first century church. He's writing mostly to Christian Jews. Now, I don't know if you knew that or not. He's not writing to Gentiles. Those are non-Jewish people. Most of us are probably Gentiles. He's writing majoritively to Christian Jews. And in, the Jude- in Judaism, that's the religion of the Jews, in Judaism and in Jewish culture, a highly honored teacher would often become a rabbi. That was a title. And the title means my great one. So every Jewish boy dreamed of becoming a rabbi, of becoming a great one. And they believed and they taught that you should help a rabbi before you even help your own parents. And the reasoning was this, parents bring you into the world, but rabbis bring you into the world to come. So they actually weighted the value of a rabbi even more greatly than your parents. For instance, if a rabbi and your parents were captured by an enemy, it was very common that you had to redeem them. You had to pay a ransom price. Listen, war was big money. They didn't try to kill everybody. They tried to capture you and then sell you back to your loved ones. That's how they made so much money in war. So if you were caught, or if your parents were caught by an enemy and a rabbi, they taught that you had to ransom your rabbi first before you even ransomed your parents. Now that is just unthinkable. Can you imagine that you call me your great one? I mean, that's kind of nice, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. (laughs) But it's unimaginable in American culture. We just don't treat clergy we don't treat pastors like that maybe for good reason but that's the way that they did treat them in the first century so now you go to verse one now that you know all of that now it brings a little bit more of a perspective to verse one not many of you james says should become teachers remember teachers were your upwardly mobile corporate ladder you become a teacher you're on your way to a rabbi, to a great one, to status, and with that status comes money. So James says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. The, the problem in the early church was not a shortage of teachers. The problem was they had too many of them, and too many of them were wanting to become a teacher with the wrong motive. See, the power of anyone's words on a platform is influential. I mean, look at me right now. I'm up on a stage. I'm higher than you other than up in the balcony. But even still, I'm up on a stage. I'm raised up. And you're all looking at me right now. And for some people, that's toxic. That's an elixir. That's an addiction. And they want that. They want that power. They want that influence that goes with it rather than actually feeling the burden and the weight and the responsibility of having to preach the word of God. They are juiced by it. They can't wait to have more of it. They want a bigger audience to gain more recognition. See, the power of anyone's words on a platform are influential. And they bear great accountability. By the way, some of you are going to be familiar with this. Have you 
heard of the comedic duo Rhett and Link on YouTube? They've got thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers. They actually worked with Crew, which is Campus Crusade for Christ. Our own David Springer, a missionary that we support, he works with Crew, and David came up out of our own youth ministry. Rhett and Link were very active with Crew, very active in their own churches, and started this. And if you watch their channel very often, you're going to feel like, you know what, I wonder if they're Christians. At least you would have said that until two weeks ago when they spent collectively three hours deconstructing their Christian faith. No longer are they even Christians, they say. They don't go to church. It's no longer true. Evolution is right. A gay lifestyle is of the Lord. I mean, this is all what's coming out of them now. They've got 350, I think, thousand views on these channels. So there is an influence when you get a platform, and James is guarding us. He's saying, listen, be careful. There's going to be greater accountability if you gain a platform of influence and teaching. But then he moves on to the rest of us. Look at verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, here we go, now with our words, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We all sin. Now get what he's saying though. This is really insightful. But gaining more control over your mouth will lead to more control over your entire life. That's pretty pivotal. Do you know what that means? That if we, by God's grace, can gain control over our words, you're going to have more control over your entire life. Over your thought life. Over your eyes. Over your dreams and your aspirations and how you feel about money. All of that's going to come into increasing control when you bridle your tongue. We've learned in this series that a 68-year-long life... You will speak, the average person will speak enough to fill 7,220 full-length books. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? I'm going to repeat that. 7,220 full-length books will come out of our mouths in a typical, it's actually a 78-year lifespan. I'm just giving the first 10 years as a wash when we really learn to get talking. So 68 years, that's how many words we're going to speak and those words will one day prove, according to Jesus, that he has recreated our hearts or that we rejected him. Look at what he says in Matthew 12. These are the words of Jesus. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Now listen to what he says. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. So our speaking either confirms that Christ has gotten a hold of our hearts and we're speaking life increasingly more, or that we've rejected him. And what's coming out of us is self-oriented. It will bring death eventually. You see, the tongue has potential for great good or terrible evil. And now James goes to the next point. So the very first one, and the weight ought to be coming on our shoulders, there's going to be accountability for every word we speak. But secondly, if we really want to tame these tongues, then we've got to remember its potential for good or evil. 
Now look what James says, and we're really going to get moving on this. Verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They are so large, and they are driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So we've got three examples, and James is so good at this. I mean, you like preaching that has lots of stories and anecdotes and illustrations. Well, James is illustrating the potential power of the tongue. He says, a little metal bit, put it in a horse's mouth, you can control and direct the whole horse. And a little tiny rudder, proportionately to a big ship, can control and direct the boat. And then he says, a little spark can begin a forest fire and it wipes out a million acres. He wrote in verse 5, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. What he means by that is that though it's small, our tongues, our mouths have incredible power and incredible influence. And not just for good, but for evil as well. Look at verse 5 again. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So the first two examples are really positive. The bit and the horse and the rudder for the ship. And then all of a sudden he says, well, it's not just good that our mouths can bring. Not just life. It can bring death. It can bring destruction. Look at that forest. Have you done a lot of studying on the great Chicago fire? Remember that? Hearing about that, right? Some of you might remember that. I don't know. I don't think so. But in 1871, October 8th, remember that, that fire started? It, allegedly, they can't prove it, but they think from Catherine O'Leary, who was in her barn milking her family cow when the cow knocked over a lighted lantern. By the time it was over, that Chicago fire, 300 people were killed, 100,000 left homeless, 17,000 buildings destroyed. Now, I think most of us knew about that, right? Did you know that at the same night that that fire started, another one had begun 250 miles north in Wisconsin, Peshtigo, Wisconsin? This was a fire that killed 1,200 people. 1.2 million acres burned. Did you know that? It started the same exact night, October 8th, 1871, that the Great Chicago Fire started. We really only usually hear about the Chicago Fire. But this one killed way more people, four times as many, and destroyed way more property. And this one allegedly started from the railroad doing a small controlled burn to lay down tracks, or possibly farmers clearing land for farming. The point is that the tongue, our mouths, has great power. Our tongue has great power, and it, and it could do good, or it can do evil. It can give life, or it can give death. Now listen, I think, I'm pretty sure, I'm really confident, that, to be honest with you, that everybody in here, certainly including me, wants to learn how to tame our mouths. Are you not tired of hurting people? And are you not tired of sinning with your mouth and the Lord convicting you? 
And do you not want to bring life to people and encouragement and bring grace to them through the way that you speak words that can lift up rather than tear down? We all want that. But if we're really going to learn, James says, to tame this tongue, number one, you've got to really understand. You're going to be accountable. I'm going to be accountable for every word we speak. But secondly, you've got to really understand the power that you've got in your mouth. You can bring really amazing life. And conversely, you can bring, and I can bring, really terrible destruction. So it's almost like my first, it was actually my third motorcycle I had. It was an 1800 BTX Honda. This thing had pistons the size of Maxwell House coffee cans. Amazing. Had 116 foot-pounds of torque, 103 horsepower. And I had to learn really quickly that there is a lot of power here, and I've got to manage that power. Well, it's the same principle with what's inside of our mouths. You've got a lot of power. And listen, it doesn't matter if you're young. You could be five and understand that. And you could be 80 and understand that. The fact of the matter is, we've got a lot of power in the way that we speak. And James is telling us and impressing on us, here's how you tame it. You're going to be accountable and realize the potential power. In fact, he warns us in verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. I don't know if you ever go Stocker, uh, Sullivan Trail uh, up through Stockertown, right, right where it forks off to 191. It could keep going right there, just beyond that fork, was a house fire a few weeks ago. I actually was on my way to Jacobsburg when it was burning. And even to today, if you go there tomorrow, you head up to Jacobsburg Park tomorrow, you drive by there and you roll your windows down, you're going to smell smoke. That's the power of fire. Not even, I mean, the building is still standing. I think it's fairly gutted, but you can smell the smoke. So even if the fire doesn't take your building, it's uninhabitable because of the smoke damage. It ruins everything. And this is James's point. Stains the whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of life. That's the power, potentially, of our tongue. And look how he ends it. In set on fire by hell. He's saying that the tongue is set on fire by hell when it is being used to destroy life. Now, there's something about that word hell that you need to know. If you ever get the chance to get over to Israel, and particularly to Jerusalem, you're going to find out you actually will probably be able to teach your guide something that they might not even know. That there are three valleys in Jerusalem. And they actually form those valleys on a topographical map, the letter for the word Sheen. That's the name of God. It's very, very interesting. But my point is this. One of those valleys is called the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Valley of Hinnom, it was what was for me in uh, my town growing up. We had a dump five miles out of town. And we would drive up there. as before we had any trucks collecting trash. We took our own trash to the dump. And there was almost always a fire burning. Well, that's true in the Valley of Hinnom. There was always a fire burning. 
Jesus refers to it in his own preaching on the subject of hell. They would take their trash. Jerusalem, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the residents, they would take their trash and they would dump it down into the valley. They took dead bodies of executed criminals and put them down there. They took the carcasses of the animals, that they, the parts that they couldn't eat, and they dumped, dumped them down there. In the Old Testament, that's where, horribly, Israel would sacrifice some of their children to the god Moloch in the Valley of Hinnom. It was awful. So James is drawing on this word Gehenna. That's the word for hell. It's actually a Hebrew word transliterated into the Greek. It means it looks the same in the Greek. He's talking about hell. And when we speak, now here's the point. Can you all listen to me? When we speak in a way that destroys in a way that demeans people, in a way that affects our agenda, regardless of what it means to somebody else. When we speak lies and when we speak gossip, it is set on fire by the same motivation of Satan. Hell is reserved for Satan and his demons. And James is saying, you want to know where your motivation is coming from? It's coming from the devil. He's the one moving you to speak death. See, what James is doing is he's impressing on us. If you really want to tame that tongue, it's going to be the fiercest battle that you have ever fought. And you've got to realize you're going to be accountable for every single word you're ever going to speak by God. And secondly, your tongue has great potential. It can bring, it can bring life, but yet it can be set on fire by the same motivation of the devil and bring death as well. give you an examples a few examples of how our mouths can destroy people you know it's so easy isn't it y'all know this it's so easy to use our words and just shade them enough to make ourselves look innocent and somebody else look so wrong there was a ship's first mate one time who went on a drunken binge and he was written up by the captain of the ship he put an entry in the ship's log, the captain did, and it literally, quote, three words, mate drunk today. Now, that's pretty lethal for your career, if that continues. Months later, here's what that first mate did to get revenge. He wrote in the log, Captain Sober today. Do you see how subtle our words can bring death it's so easy to just twist them a little bit and meanwhile our tongues are set on fire by hell that's the motivation of the devil adam did this by the way when he inaccurately confessed when god caught him drew him out of behind the trees and he said who told you why did you eat the fruit and he said this, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Did you see what he did? He blames his own wife and God. It's the woman you gave to me. She's the one that led me astray. See, our tongues are so good at trying to dodge the blame and shift it just a little bit. We could do it in such subtle ways. That's a weaponized mouth. 
Think of the malicious power of gossip or even the empty praise of flattery. A lot of us probably commit flattery sins even when we don't even realize we're doing it. Well, what is it? Gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to his face. And flattery is saying to his face what you would never say behind his back. And we do these things all the time. Think of the weapon called a critical tongue. What is more commonly called a fault finder or a judgmental person. A fault finder is one who slashes others with their words from an elevated perch of rightness. And the Bible says this, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. You see the difference between the tongue that brings life and the one that brings death? That's the potential. And when we cut people... It is to reduce them. It is to hurt them and to harm them. And our tongues can speak lies. They can falsely accuse other people. They can betray confidences and so much more. Our mouths are capable of great, great good. But James is impressing us on the potential of them being set on fire by hell. And he's not done warning us yet. Point number three. If we're going to learn to tame these tongues then remember it's actually beyond your power to do it he can't be any more clear verse six for every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind but no human being can tame the tongue it is a restless evil full of deadly poison he's told us that we're going to be accountable for our words that we've got to use our tongues for good, for life, and not destruction and death. They've got a potential for that. Now he's impressing on us that you and I, we do not have the power in and of ourselves to actually tame these tongues. I remember reading this a while ago, I think years ago. It goes like this. It's, a, it's on a windswept hill, by the way, in the English country in an English country churchyard, there is a very drab, very gray slate tombstone. Here's what's written on it. I read this years ago. I thought I'd tell you about it. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. Is that our hope? To die? Is that the only time we're ever going to be able to tame this tongue? Took that for Arabella Young, but what is our only solution? The Greek world, by the way, before I tell you the answer, the Greek world took great, great pride in its control over the animal kingdom. It was not uncommon in the first century throughout Rome in the courtyards of Roman houses to have fish ponds. Lots of people have them today. They had tamed fish. The Romans actually built a temple to their god of medicine. I think Asclepius is a god of medicine. And in his temple, tame serpents glided about, and they were supposedly incarnations of the god. If you were sick, and you believed in the power of Asclepius, then your friends and family would pick you up on a stretcher and lay you in the courtyard of this temple. I'm not telling you, this is a true story. And you would sleep there at night. And if a serpent glided over you, it was supposed to be the healing touch of the god. By the way, the symbol for Asclepius is the same exact symbol that's on the sides of every ambulance. 
But while mankind figured out how to control animals of every kind, not so the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. The word tame, you should know this, it means to reduce it to stillness or quietness. That's what it means, that word tame. But I want you to notice James did not say no one could tame the tongue. He just said no human being can tame the tongue. And he's going to show us that our only hope is in the God-man, Jesus Christ. As we pray with the psalmist, O God, O Lord, set a guard over my mouth and keep watch over the door of my lips. Lord, you're going to have to do it. Because I know I'm going to be accountable for it. And I know the potential that I can bring life, but man, I can bring death. But I also know I cannot, in my own power, tame this thing. It's such a small member, but I cannot get a hold of it. So God, you're going to have to do it. You're going to have to keep watch over the door of my lips. And the way that Jesus will transform our mouths is the focus of our final point. Point number four. To tame the tongue, remember the true source of our words. Look at verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? The answer is always rhetorically no. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So he's using several metaphors. This is the genius of James's writing. He's very good at this. He's very narrative, very, very metaphoric in his writing to help you get the pictures of what he's saying. And what he's saying is this. If you really want a tamed heart, then what you're really seeking is a, or a tamed tongue. What you're seeking is a tamed heart. The only way to tame the tongue is for somebody to tame your heart. The kind of water you get when you open your faucet depends on the water table below your ground. I grew up in central New York. The water table on the hill that I grew up in was all sulfur water. It was my job for, since I was strong enough to carry two six-gallon containers to walk down the hill to my neighbor who had steady water. And I would fill both containers up and walk them back up. Every two or three days, I had to go do it again. That was our drinking water. What you have below you is what you're going to get when you turn the faucet on. If you've got a fig tree, don't expect olives to grow from it or figs to come from a grapevine. In the same way, if you pipe water out of a salt pond, you're not going to get fresh water. James is saying over and over, our words, now listen, you've got to get the trajectory. Our words travel up from our hearts. And there's nothing that changes its constitution on the way. So listen, if you've got bad heart, if you've got evil intentions, if you've got malicious motives, then that's what's going to come out of your mouth. And there's nothing that's going to change it on its journey. And if you've got good intentions and you've got life-giving motivations, then that's what's going to come out. And there's nothing that's going to change the Constitution on its journey. And this is what James says. There's a direct corollary between what we speak and what's in our hearts. 
it's only a renewed heart that could produce pure speech. It's only a tamed heart that can tame your tongue. Oswald Chambers puts it this way. If a cup is filled only with good water, it cannot spill even one drop of bitter water, no matter how badly it is jarred. Now think about that again in the often used analogy of driving. Even if you've got a terrible driver in front of you, if you have good filling your heart, not even that is going to bring evil out of your mouth. I think an analogy that might just help you, I've used it before, but I use it a lot in counseling, is this. If you take a tube of toothpaste and you spin the lid off or pop the cap, and then all of a sudden squeeze it, what was in that tube that you could not see now starts to come out of the outlet and you can see what's in there. That's what trials do to us. That's what difficulty does to us. It squeezes our hearts. And what was in our hearts that we were not able to see starts pouring out of our mouths. And the Lord is so gracious. But he, because he gets to tell you, look what's coming out of your mouth. That's been in your heart. I, I've been able to see it, but you've not been seeing it. So I'm graciously allowing you to see that. So that you and I together can bring a tameness to your heart. We can renew that heart. But it takes confession. It takes filling your heart with the word of God. It takes being on your knees, whether literally or metaphysically, or, or metaphorically rather. It means you're in prayer a lot. And you're speaking to God. And all the time that you're in prayer, God is doing Matthew 6 kind of stuff. You know, where let your will on earth be, or your will in heaven be done on earth. It means your will in prayer is adjusting to God's will. He's never going to do it the other way around. You do know that, right? That God doesn't change his will to match yours. He changes our wills to match his. That's the power of prayer. And so when the word of God is pouring into your heart, because you're saying, this is, I can't even go on my day without getting in the word, because I know what's capably going to come out of my mouth. And it won't bring life. It will bring my agenda, my selfishness, and it's going to bring destruction to people around me. So I am not going to go on my day without getting the word of God in my heart. And neither will I start before I've got time with God where he can adjust my heart and get me the right perspective and my mind renewed. Otherwise, I'm going to go to a difficult place where I work, a, different, a difficult school that I have to go to, and I'm going to have nothing but junk coming out of my heart all day. And that is not acceptable. So how does he do it? And that's going to be the end of this message. You've got to look forward a little bit more. Look at verse chapter 3, verse 17. Here's the secret. How does God tame our hearts? But the wisdom from above, chapter 1, that means from God. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere now what is wisdom wisdom is the power of god it is the power of god to take his knowledge and apply it to your lives in pure speech in this context that's what wisdom does if wisdom is filling your heart wisdom will come out of your mouth 
It is the power of God to take what you know to be true about God and to be able to have it expressed in your life and particularly in this context through your mouths. Now, I want to I make sure that you really understand this because so many of us misunderstand wisdom. Wisdom is not the downloading of raw data. Wisdom is not the mystical ability to know, oh, that's the job I should take, or that's the college that I should go to. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is literally the power of God to take double-minded people. You know, people like, I know the way I ought to live because God's made it clear, but that's not the way I'm choosing to live. That's a double-minded person. Wisdom is the power of God to take double-minded people and create single-minded living. That everything that comes out of my mouth, everything that I'm doing, is coming from the knowledge that I have of God. Because his knowledge surpasses mere information. And it's creating and recreating in me a love for God and a love for other people and a purity in my heart. So that when the faucet gets turned on and I speak, the words that come pouring out of my mouth are coming from a heart that God's gotten a hold of and filled with wisdom. So listen, this is what James says. This is his brilliance in writing this book. If you lack wisdom, if you're speaking death and you need wisdom, then ask and God will give generously, he says, without finding fault. But don't ask and doubt. Because if you're going to doubt that God can give you wisdom, you're going to be like a boat on a storm-tossed sea, and you're going to be going back and forth. Just ask. And God's going to give you wisdom, the power that God has to take double-minded people and move them into single-minded living. In other words, God's going to pour into your heart life and beauty, and kindness, and goodness. And when you get jarred, you know, somebody has an unkind word for you, what's going to come out is not like that. It's not going to be in kind. It's going to be from God, and it will bring life. And all of a sudden, you'll remember that it's the kind reply that soothes an angry person. You're going to remember that it's kindness that puts coals back on your enemy's head. And you're going to remember that you can actually bring life when you do that because they're going to get to the end of their rope. They're going to break. They're going to see somebody that is absolutely pure in their words and in their heart, and they don't have a target with you anymore. And now they're going to be open to the gospel message. And when you tell them what Jesus has done for you, they're going to have ears they can hear. That's the beauty and the power of wisdom. You see, self-control without God's control leads to no control. It's an untamed tongue. If you want control over your tongue, then your heart must change. And the only one that could change your heart is Christ. If our tongues are to be tamed, we remember first that God is holding us accountable for every single word we speak. Let that weight press down on you. By the way, that doesn't start when you're 18. God doesn't give you first 18 years pass. It starts now. And it started when you learned to talk. But let that weight come down and impress on your soul the great potential that your mouth can bring good or it can bring evil, life or death. But let those two truths settle in your heart 
and convince you that in your own power you have proven it, you cannot tame it. So appeal to God and ask for wisdom. Cry out for it, James chapter 1, and let his power bring your hearts to a place where they can come up and speak life. That's the promise of James, and that is good news. Amen?